Welcome to Stories of Iceland. I continue my efforts to build an Icelandic podcast empire, and my company has finally all the papers to start doing business. I've ordered equipment, and my studio will hopefully be fully furnished in the next few weeks. So this is almost certainly... So this is almost certainly the last episode recorded with my old gear. When I write this, Reykjavik is being turned upside down because of a visit from the Vice President of the United States. There are snipers on rooftops, apparently for protection rather than assassination. Rainbow-colored flags are being flown near to where the Vice President is going to meet the Icelandic President. This meeting was supposed to be held at the official residence of the president, Bessastadir, but sources say that it was deemed insecure by the U.S. Secret Service, which makes me feel lucky to live in a country where no one expects anyone to assassinate the president. Today's episode was difficult to write, and in the end I decided to cut out the parts of the script and use it for a special bonus episode for my Patreon supporters. If you would like to get early access to episodes and other bonus features, please go to patreon.com slash stories of Iceland and sign up there. I'd like to thank all of my supporters, especially Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. But this is Stories of Iceland Episode 23, and it's called The Berserker of Butter Hill. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. I was 16 or 17 when I first heard about my grandmother's grandfather. It seems strange since it is such an amazing story. The reason why I never heard about him is that my grandmother didn't like to talk about such things. My grandmother was born in 1912, a few months after the sinking of the Titanic. Those events were largely unconnected. Her name was Fridfina Ingiburg Oladotir. She never used her first name, and it was quite strange when the computer age came into full force and banks and official documents started to use it in correspondence. She used the name Ingiburg, and my younger son is called Ingimar, to honor her. I, of course, simply called her Amma but her friends tended to call her Inga. That is quite lucky since Inga is such a stereotypical Scandinavian name that almost all my listeners must have heard it before. Inga was born in Axarfjörður, which is a fjord in the northeast of Iceland, the second to last fjord on the sheep's back. Her father, my great-grandfather, was called Oli, just like me. His father Johannes died in 1907, 
But his mother still lived at the farm and would do so until she died at age 90 in the year 1940. Her name was Friðfinna Ingibjörg, just like my grandmother. The farm they lived on was named Smjörhotl, which means Butter Hill. It is a strange name since butter is usually associated with good farmlands where, as the saying goes, butter drips from every straw. The name could actually refer to literal butter since some people have claimed that the milk from the farm was tastier than usual. The second half of the name is quite literal since the farmlands around there are rather hilly. Butter Hill actually has another name. It was sometimes called Herhotl, which means Army Hill. I have never gotten to the bottom of that name, but there is at least one toponym in the area that includes the word blood. The name Army Hill was in fact used by the parish priest in official records because he was, apparently, convinced that it was older and therefore more correct than Butter Hill. When the priest was gone, the name Butterhill was used exclusively. When she was little, my grandmother was a fan of the name Army Hill, and I have a Yuletide card from when she was ten years old, addressed to Inga at Army Hill. The first people in my family to live at Butterhill were my grandmother's grandfather Johannes and his aforementioned wife. They moved there in 1895. Johannes was born at Longanes, literally the Long Peninsula, which I mostly refer to as the tail of the sheep. The farm he grew up on was called Sönerskot. It is a three-part word. Sönerskot means sheep's peninsula, but the last part, kot, denotes a small farm. I assume kot is Etymologically speaking, related to the English word cottage, but it doesn't convey the same meaning. In Icelandic, kvot is mostly used to refer to a small inferior piece of land and the small poor house upon the land. In most cases, including Sönerskot, there is another farm, the main farm, with better fields and rich houses. So, near to Sødernesgård, there was another farm called Sødernes. And when Johannes, who was described as being a hard worker, tall and strong, was about 20, he started working at the large farm. If I was in the clickbait business, I would now say, and you'll never guess what happened next. Since my grandmother never told me... What happened, I don't have any family lore, but the story was preserved. The main source is a man called Benjamin Sewaldason, who was born on a farm near Butterhill, in the same year that Johannes moved there. According to Benjamin, he was about 11, out working with his father, when Johannes showed up. Johannes, who was about 61 years old at the time, was apparently a welcomed guest, and Benjamin describes him as being fun. After a while, the boy's father asked Johannes if he could tell them the story about the business with the Frenchman, and claimed that he had never heard it properly told. 
Benjamin says that this was not true at all, and they had heard the story many times before, but Johannes obliged and told them the story again. When Benjamin grew up, he published numerous books with stories, especially from the northeast corner of Iceland. There are a few other versions, but his is the most believable. So, Johannes was about 20 years old, maybe a little older. This was sometime between 1865 and 1869. You might think that Iceland was really isolated back then, especially in the northeast, but in fact there were foreign fishing vessels all around. Most of them were friends. There might in fact have been about 200 to 300 French ships fishing in Icelandic waters at any time in the mid to late 19th century. On these ships there might have been 3,000 to 5,000 fishermen. These men often traded with the locals. Icelanders were especially keen on French bread called biscuit, but also ammunition and alcohol. The French, on the other hand, craved woolen mittens, woolen sweaters, fresh milk, and of course, meat. The French even bought live Icelandic sheep to ensure the supply of fresh meat. The Frenchman's taste for Icelandic sheep was reportedly so great that they were rumored to steal live animals from unattended flocks. This was no small matter since the meat provided by the sheep was the main foodstuff throughout the winter. Johannes had heard these stories, so when he was out walking and saw a single French ship unusually close to the shore, he decided to go and take a closer look. When he got there, he saw that the Frenchmen had cornered the group of sheep on the shore. They were tying them up so they could be more easily transported by boat to the ship. They even forced the sheep's heads between their legs so they would take up less room. Benjamin notes that this treatment of animals was quite objectionable. They had tied about 20 sheep and were starting to carry them onto a boat. Johannes, who was otherwise known to be calm and quiet, became enraged. He picked up a stick of driftwood and confronted the men, hoping to drive them away. Since he was outnumbered, the friends decided to stand their ground and fight. Johannes, like Han Solo of Star Wars fame, didn't consider the odds and used his stick to attack them. The thieves now drew their machetes and attacked him using these deadly weapons. Johannes didn't back down, but was instead filled with what can only be described by using an old Icelandic word that has been passed into English, a berserker rage. He did not back down, even though he was wounded numerous times, and in the end the Frenchmen fled and took their fallen comrades with them. Since most of the fight had been in a kind of blur, Johannes said that he could not really know for sure if he had killed any of the men. He was so exhausted that he lost consciousness, and was later found unconscious on the beach. He was wounded and had lost quite a lot of blood, but luckily he slowly recovered. 
Benjamin said that as word of his deeds traveled around, Johannes became a sort of hero. He himself was more conflicted. He rarely talked about the event, and when he did, he confided his fear that he might in fact have killed someone, which weighed heavily on his conscience. Other people had less qualms about what happened. He had simply tried to protect his master's property, and the Frenchmen could have avoided any harm if they had simply retreated. Years passed. Johannes kept working at Sjöernes, but in 1874, a new worker was hired there, a woman named Fridfina Ingeborg Jonsdottir. They started their courtship and were married in the next year. In 1875, they moved to a farm called Hrotluksstadir. I mention this because this is an awful name for any non-Icelander. It simply means the farm of Rotlöjur. It is at the east coast of Longanes, the sheep's tail. At that time there was a little fishing village nearby called Skaular. It has been deserted since 1954. Also nearby is Heiderfjall, where the U.S. Air Force ran a general surveillance radar station from 1954 to 1968. The surrounding area is still quite polluted because of how refuge from the station, including lead-based batteries, were discarded. While Johannes lived at Rotlukstadir, an event occurred which would change the course of my family history. There were still friendships around, and Johannes did continue to trade with them. One time he went aboard a French ship with a few other men to trade, he noticed one of the sailors looking at him, giving him the proverbial evil eye, while quietly talking to his shipmates. One of the Icelanders understood a little bit of French and informed Johannes that the sailor had pointed at him and told his friends that he believed that this man was the man who had killed his brother. Johannes and his mates decided to abandon ship as quickly as they could. When they were pushing their boats away from the ship, the sailor came running with a machete and swung it at Johannes, but luckily he missed and the machete got stuck in the side of the boat. After this, Johannes never boarded a French ship and decided to move from Longanes. His wife Ridfina was originally from Axelfjörður, and they moved there in 1881. For a decade and a half they moved repeatedly from one farm to another, until 1895 when they finally settled in Butterhill. It might not have been the best farmland, but after the hard years in between, it must have felt like there was in fact butter dripping from every straw. Johannes had two children. My great-grandfather Oli and his sister Anna Kristin. It is through Anna Kristin that we have another account about Johannes. She married a man called Jon Magnusson, whose brother Guðmundur became one of Iceland's best-known poets and authors of the early 20th century under the nom de plume Jon Trösti. In 1909, Jon Trösti published a short story based on events from the life of Johannes. It was exaggerated while still using his name, 
So it was based on a real story in the Hollywood sense of the phrase. In this version, the evil French sailors had been upgraded from mere sheep thieves to kidnappers, having abducted both the wife and daughter of Johannes. The story ends with Johannes being half mad before his death, which is not supported by any other source. But there are little details which might shed a little light upon the real man. The story claims that Johannes would never talk about the incident unless he had been drinking. This could very well explain why Benjamin takes care to say that Johannes was fun. In Icelandic, this can be a euphemism for being drunk. With this in mind, I am tempted to fill in the blanks and imagine Benjamin's father offering the old man a little wine to get him in the storytelling mood. At least it was fortuitous, since Benjamin grew up to become the archetypical Icelandic folk scholar, who was driven by a need to preserve the stories from his youth. Butterhill was the only farm I spent any time on as a child. I spent a week there when I was about eight or nine years old, with my grandmother visiting her siblings and nephew. It was a bit of a culture shock. One of the strongest memories I have from there is eating porridge that disagreed with me so badly that I actually regurgitated it straight back into the bowl after trying my best to keep it down. It put me off porridge for many years. But otherwise, these are happy memories of trying to help with the work and spending time in beautiful surroundings. The house was also full of books, because the people who lived there might not have had opportunities for higher education, so they instead educated themselves. My grandmother's nephew still lives there, and I visited there a few years ago, and I hope I will return there soon. It is a truly beautiful area, which is largely ignored by tourists. If you do travel there, you could even go all the way to Longinus, the tale of the Icelandic sheep. There is, at least in the summertime, an exhibition at Sölnes about the history of the area, which you could visit and be sure to ask about Johannes the humble berserker. But that is it for today. Thanks to Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, Austin Yule, Fred Sutler, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, a friend of the podcast. Today, these supporters are being rewarded with a bonus episode, which tells a related story that features a few of the same characters. Go to patreon.com slash stories of Iceland to support this podcast and get extra material. I am Oleg Nestisolaison and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 23, The Berserker of Butter Hill.